Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. Welcome, everyone, to our online teaching at Bay Ridge Christian Church. It's great that even with a crazy pandemic, we can continue to meet and praise God and learn from His Word. And I know there are probably some folks out there listening in who aren't part of BRCC, maybe even some who aren't part of any local church and and don't even know who this fellow named Jesus is that we Christians uh, make so much of. Well, I want to welcome you too. And and please, uh, let me just ask that you hang in for the next 30 minutes or so. and, And let me say to you, I believe that will be worth your while. So let me pray and and we'll jump right in. I pray, oh God, please don't let me mess this up. For the next 30 minutes, Lord, be with me, inspire me. No matter what else, Father, I get wrong today or or this week, help me not to get this wrong. Help me to diminish that praise and worship and faith in you would increase. Amen. Today, we're going to deal with the most important issue you will ever face. Because if Jesus is who he said he is, if if he's the Jesus we Christians believe in, then how you respond to him will be the most important thing you ever do in your entire life. It's not an easy decision. You and I and everybody have a huge conflict of interest in deciding because if you confront it honestly, it will change everything. This is a decision you want to really think through. Look, if, if you've decided you don't believe, that's your choice. But, but please, you owe it to yourself to make sure you know what you're not believing in. You owe it to yourself to make sure you don't believe because you've thought about it, wrestled with it, and, and you've made a fully informed decision not to believe. Because if there is a God and he's like the God of the Bible, if he's like Jesus, then everything changes. Today is Palm Sunday on the Christian calendar. It's the first day of the week before Jesus goes to the cross. It's the Sunday before Easter Sunday. Christians sometimes call it Jesus' triumphal entry because it's akin to the triumphant entry great kings and warriors staged when they return from victory in battle. Jews will recognize it because it's the Sunday before the Passover feast. Passover was the celebration of the deliverance of the Jews from from a bondage in in Egypt through 10 plagues. Maybe with a novel coronavirus sweeping the earth, that makes this Palm Sunday and, and this Passover even more relevant. Tradition also tells us that it was on this Sunday, the the Sunday before Passover started, that Jewish families would select the lamb they would sacrifice for the Passover meal. I'm going to read the account of that first Palm Sunday from the book of Matthew, from uh, from Matthew um, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. As I was preparing for today's sermon, I watched a lot of pastors give a, a lot of past Palm Sunday sermons, and, and there are a lot of them out there. And there are sermons on just about every aspect of Palm Sunday. I even ran across a number of, uh, of sermons that considered Palm Sunday from the perspective of the donkey uh, Jesus was riding on. They were mostly about what the donkey must have thought if donkeys could think about such things. Look, I get it. Most uh, people who sit through a sermon want to hear something mildly entertaining and maybe get a new insight or, or twist on something they thought they already knew. And that gets hard for a professional pastor who has to give a fresh Easter sermon every year or a new perspective on Christmas. My guess is that about 10 years in, it, it starts getting hard to find something new to talk about. But since this is my first Palm Sunday sermon, that's not going to be a problem for me. Anything I say is going to be new, at least new to me. So rather than try to find a, a new twist, we're just going to talk about some of the basics, like what in the world is going on here? Most importantly, I'd like to try to answer the question our text says the whole city asked. It's the central question of all the New Testament. Who is this? That's the question, is it not? Who is this Jesus? Everyone then and now has an opinion. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, some people called him a, a glutton and a drunkard. Over and over in the New Testament, the, the religious authorities say he's a friend of tax collectors and, and sinners. He's a blasphemer. In John 10, 20, we find some thought Jesus was possessed by a demon and raving mad. Uh, for this group of people, the, the question wasn't, who is this? It was, who does this Jesus think he is? They, they were full of contempt and scorn. Th this group of people weren't waving palm branches. They were plotting Jesus' death. Also in that shouting crowd were people for whom Christ had worked miracles, restored their sight, healed their bodies, uh, freed their minds from possession. John tells us Lazarus was there, who, who Jesus had raised from the dead, and friends of Lazarus who had seen him do it. Many of those people were probably adding their hosannas and praises. Others were probably part of this group sincerely asking, who is this? Jesus asked his disciples shortly before entering Jerusalem the same thing. Who do people say I am? His disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus asks, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responds by telling Peter he's been blessed because God the Father has revealed this to him. The donkey confirms Peter's response, not in the way some have spoken about the donkey, not in what the donkey thought of the Messiah riding him. After all, the donkey's not talking, but in the reason for a donkey in the first place. Why a donkey? Go get a donkey? Why a donkey? 
A donkey is a fairly ridiculous way to travel, is it not? We find the answer in a, in a book written more than 500 years earlier, and it gives us a powerful indication of who this Jesus is. In the Old Testament, in Zechariah chapter 2 and chapter 9, Zechariah gives his readers two reasons to rejoice. Here in Zechariah 10, I'm sorry, Zechariah 2, verses 10 to 11, shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Maybe you notice that the speaker of these verses isn't Zechariah. It's the Lord who declares he's coming. He will live among you. But then he says, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This happens all over the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's startling that we're constantly confronted by more than one divine person called the Lord. Over and over in the Old Testament, in Judges, in Genesis, in Numbers, in Job, it's all over the place in Psalms. Here is light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, as the Nicene Creed puts it. This is the Lord Christ. And in Zechariah 2, he's speaking about how he would dwell in the midst of the people and, and, and he would join them to his Father, the Lord Almighty. In Zechariah 9.9, he's back. And here, Zechariah tells us how we will recognize the Lord when he comes. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Here is the Lord Christ. In Zechariah 2, he talks of dwelling with his people, that he would join them to his father, the Lord Almighty. Now in Zechariah 9, he talks of peace, taking away the chariots and war horses and proclaiming peace. Kings rode donkeys as a sign of peace. In times of war, kings and warlords ride a horse. In the book of Revelation, when Jesus returns to judge the earth, he comes riding on a horse. But here in Zechariah, the Lord is offering terms of peace. And Zechariah is saying we know that because he comes riding on a donkey. Look again at how Zechariah 9.9 puts it. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They called it the triumphal entry to compare it with the triumphal entry of Roman kings returning from war to accept honor and praise. And Christ accepts the honor and praise of the crowd on Palm Sunday. But Christ's triumph is very different than those Roman kings. His entry is very different. For a start, he uses a very different method of transportation that radically subverts people's expectations of a, of a king. He does not ride into town on a mighty war horse. He is the king, but he's not that kind of king. He's the lowly king, and he comes on a donkey. It's a weird juxtaposition, isn't it? Righteous and victorious, lowly and humble. Look, you can't treat Jesus like other kings because Jesus' kingdom doesn't operate the same way theirs does. It doesn't operate on force or pride or, or wealth. 
It operates on mercy. He turns our understanding of what's strong and right on its head, and he does exactly what we don't expect he'll do. Just before Jesus enters Jerusalem, we learn more about what this looks like from Jesus himself. Look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28. Let me set this up first. Jesus is traveling with the 12, and he, and he tells them they're going to Jerusalem. He, he's ready to make his grand entry. And then he adds that he's going to be arrested and mocked and flogged and condemned to death. He, he's going to be crucified. Now, I don't know. Maybe they were so excited about Jesus going to Jerusalem that they missed the part about his being captured and tortured and, and killed. In fact, John and James seem to think this is a good time to jostle ahead of the others and vie for the top spots when Jesus takes the throne. Uh, understandably, when the other ten find out about John and James' political machinations, they get angry. <laughs> how, does this, how, how does Jesus respond? W with a very compassionate come-to-Jesus meeting. Matthew tells us about it in chapter 20, verses 25 to 28. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We constantly worry about our position, especially as it relates to one another. We, we know deep down I, I'm not okay, but so long as I'm better than him or getting more than her, things aren't so bad. We, we work intensively to get ahead of the next person, constantly defining our own self-value against how we perceive others. A German psychologist named Stefan Steiger conducted a research project last year for the, uh, for the journal Frontiers in Psychology. And in it, Steiger um, interviewed both regular social media users and people who didn't use social media at all. And I don't mean to reduce Steiger's report to a, a soundbite here because it's quite comprehensive, but what Steiger found was, was that frequent social media users very often suffered less satisfaction with their lives than people who weren't involved with social media at all. And even more, he found that the more friends you had on Facebook, the less likely you were to be satisfied with your own life. The study also found that quitting social media for a week significantly increased people's psychological well-being. Why? Because people get depressed when they see everyone else posting all those happy photos, fancy meals, intimate moments with their friends and family. People become dissatisfied with their own lives. How come my puppy isn't that adorable? Why don't I have romantic dinners every night? Where's my boat, my beach house? Or equally destructive, we justify ourselves and say, well, at least I'm better than him. I deserve more recognition than her. We keep an anxious eye on our own status and on everyone else's, and we get unhappy or angry or depressed if someone else gets ahead or if we fall behind. And so back and forth we go between dissatisfaction, envy, and resentment on the one hand and pride and self-justification on the other. Then 
While we jostle to get ahead, the, the judge of the world shows up and flips everything upside down. He, he says, whoever wants to be great has to be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Jesus turns everything inside out, and it's a stab right through our envy, our, our greed, our dissatisfaction, our complaint. It's the murder of all of our attempts to justify ourselves. While we shove our way to first place, Jesus shows up in last place. He, he shows up at the bottom of the heap, the lowest of the low, where he slaves and he suffers and he bleeds and he dies and he descends into infinite hell to pay the price for infinite sin. And then out of the valley of the shadow of death, he ascends as our once and only king. The last becomes first. The, the slave becomes Lord. The people of Zechariah's day would never see the coming king that Zechariah wrote about. He, he took 500 years to come. But on that first Palm Sunday, it all comes about exactly as Zechariah foretold it would. Remember what we said earlier. If Jesus is who he says he is, he, he not only knows Zechariah's scripture, he's the very same one who spoke those words through Zechariah 500 years earlier. Your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. Who is this? He's your humble-hearted Lord God Almighty. Consider the shouts of the crowd. Hosanna means save us. And Jesus has indeed come to save them, but not in the way they expected. Not to rid them of Romans, but to be killed by Romans. Not to sit on a throne, but to be nailed to a cross. Not to wear a crown of gold, but to wear a crown of thorns. Unlike the triumphal entry of Roman generals, Jesus is not returning from battle. <laughs> He's headed to his death. And at least some of those present on that Sunday who, who cried Hosanna will scream a few days later, crucify him. Jesus knows this is what awaits him, yet, yet he rides on. He, he knows he'll be betrayed, arrested, tortured, and crucified, yet he rides on. If the crowd had known their scripture as well as Jesus, they too might have seen what was coming. That the crowd would cry out, Hosanna, save us. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We're all predicted, just like the roll of the donkey hundreds of years earlier. It's Psalm 118. I'll read from the English Standard Version because I think it, it makes it a little clearer what's going on. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The blessed one is the coming one. Yeah, he, he comes in the name of the Lord. But where is he coming to? Here in the Palm Sunday procession, we see the welcoming ceremony, but it's not just praisers who are there. There are also the grumblers, the ones who uh, don't say, who is this? They say, who does he think he is? The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the temple magistrates, they're all there. And they, and they greet Jesus from the house of the Lord, the temple. But when they take hold of him, what do they do? Psalm 118 tells us, they bind the sacrifice with ropes and take it up to the horns of the altar. And so the lowly king of Ezekiel 9 who rides in on a donkey is also the human sacrifice taken up to the altar in Psalm 118. This was the central mission of Jesus on earth, 
Remember Ezekiel chapter 2? He, he was to join his people to his father, the Lord God Almighty. This is the meekness of our Lord, a king who is known in sacrifice, a God who is so determined to win our hearts, he will ride to his own execution. Nothing stops him, nothing slows him. He'll ride on for people who mock him with insincere praise one day, but howl for his blood just a few days later. This is the God of Scripture. Who is this? This is Jesus Christ, the God-man, the great king of the universe who makes his triumphal procession not on a stallion with sword drawn, but on a lowly donkey to rescue you and me by dying in our place. So how do we apply the lesson of Palm Sunday? Well, first, what's important to you? Are you struggling to get to the top? Do you compare yourself to others only to find you're disappointed that you don't have a better life, more romance, a nicer vacation house? Or do you justify yourself by thinking, well, at least I'm better than him? And are you finding all of that envy and self-justification only leads to further dissatisfaction? What do you do? In Matthew uh, chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus tells us exactly what to do. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's saying, Give up the striving, give up the self-justification, give up the envy and the greed and the selfishness. Look instead to him, the lowly and humble king who comes to serve. Don't you see you're never going to find satisfaction comparing yourself to others? Your deepest needs are only ever going to be met by Jesus Christ. First, that your life matters, that you're important, your life has meaning. And second, that you're loved. Loved beyond anything you can hope or understand. Loved even though you know you're deeply flawed. Even though you're not who you want to be. That's the kind of love Jesus offers. From Romans uh, chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Next, who are you in the story of Jesus' triumphal entry? Are you one of those cheering disciples who shout, save us, blessed is the Lord? Or are you one of those who honestly asks, who is this? Or are you one of those who sneers, who does this man think he is? There are only one of two ways to respond to Jesus Christ. There are those who shout, Hosanna, save us. Those who bow down before the king and submit who love and honor and praise Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. And then there are those who cry, crucify him. Which one are you? And finally, who do you say Jesus Christ is? If you're watching and you don't know the answer to that question, I urge you to cry out now. Ask Jesus for his guidance. Ask for clarity. Remember how we started today? How you respond to Jesus is the most important question you'll ever have to deal with in your life. I know a lot of people today say they love Jesus' great teachings, his moral lessons, his focus on social justice. Well, I'm sorry, but if you don't know Jesus as your Redeemer and your King, then you don't love his teachings or his morality or his social justice. 
You see, if God isn't God of the entire universe, then there is no moral code. There, there is no definite right, no definite wrong. Everything is chemistry. Everything is an accident. There is no reason. There is no morality. There is no social justice. But if Jesus is king of the cosmos, as he claims, if, as Colossians says, he created all things and, and he holds all things together by the power of his word, then, of course, there's order. And only then is love real, because only the God of the Bible creates out of an overflowing of love. Chemistry is only chemistry. It can't make love real. But the Bible says God is love. And it's out of that love that God creates. And Jesus and King Jesus has come to unite us with the, with the Father, bring us into that circle of love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Yes, Jesus is the king of the cosmos. And objectively speaking, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you care or not, Jesus is the creator of all things, and all things are held together by his word. But Jesus isn't just king of all creation. He can also be your king, the king of your life, the king of your heart. To the degree Jesus is the king of your life, then your life will be full. In him, you'll hold together not by your own power, but by the power of his word. If he can hold everything in the universe together by the power of his word, don't you think he can hold your life together? It doesn't mean the storms won't come. They will. You'll get sick. You'll lose your job. You'll be betrayed by a friend. But if Jesus is the king of your life, then you won't be destroyed. You may be shaken, but you won't be forever ruined or, or destroyed. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ as king, nothing is more important for you to think about. Nothing is more important for you to dwell on and consider. Nothing is more important for your future or your life, the, the life to come, than for you to make that decision. But what about those of us who claim we are believers? Are we treating Jesus as our king? I know many believers are indeed, and they're experiencing Christ's blessedness no matter the crisis that comes their way. But a lot of us aren't. We aren't submitting to him. We aren't obeying. Forgiveness always, truth always, don't envy, don't be bitter, turn the other cheek, never return evil for evil, but always return good for evil, always. We can't do any of these things perfectly. But do we even try? And when we fail... Do we confess? Do we pray for forgiveness? And do we try again? Don't you see, if you say, I'll obey if, if he gives me the sexual partner I want, if he gives me the job I want, if he gives me the marriage or the income or the promotion or the, or the healing I want, then I'll obey, then I'll trust. Don't you see, you're not trusting him as king at all. You're trying to be the king, and you're asking Jesus to be your counselor, your cabinet minister in charge of good times. That's not who Jesus is. He, he's the king, creator, and redeemer of the universe. You have to submit to him. You, you have to, to say, not my will, but yours be done. That's how you find the joy and the happiness, the, the meaning you so desperately crave and need. It's the paradox we talked about earlier. If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you, want to be, if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. It's the meek, not the proud, who inherit. Do you treat Jesus as your king? Do you submit to him? Do you 
trust him? Or here's another way to look at it. Do you, do you rely on him? Have you been so overwhelmed by the wonderful things he's done in your life that you've just come to expect even more wonderful things in the future? There's a place in John Newton's great hymn, uh, Come My Soul, and uh, it, it says this, Thou art coming to a king, uh, large petitions would thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Do you understand that for King Jesus there, there is no request too small or too large? It's as easy for him to give you what you need as it is for Bill Gates to flip you a quarter. But the difference is that Jesus loves you. He proved it by dying for you. And as Ezekiel told us he would, he's joined you with the Father. And so now when God looks at you, he sees Jesus Christ. How much does God love his son? That's how much he loves you. How beautiful is Christ to the Father? That's how beautiful you are to the Father. You can love your king because you'll never match the love he's already shown you. Who do you say Jesus is? Anne Beshoor is going to sing our closing song today, Lead Me to the Cross. Sing with Anne, will you? Ask Jesus to lead you to the cross. Whether you've been there before or it's your first time ever, there is no place more powerful to witness Jesus as King of life than at the foot of the cross where you see his life poured out for you. Thanks to Anne Beshore who uh, did all the music today. What a, what a wonderful blessing uh, that's been for us here on Palm Sunday. Um, really appreciate it, Anne. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to close us today with a prayer I found online from the Bulletin of the Rochester Christian Reformed Church. I think it perfectly sums up the way we should be thinking today and, and throughout the week leading to Easter Sunday. Uh, loving God, you rode a, rode a donkey and came in peace, humbled yourself and gave yourself for us. Uh, we confess our lack of humility. As you entered Jerusalem, the crowd shouted, Hosanna, save us. On Good Friday, they shouted, crucify. We confess our praise is often empty. We sing Hosanna but cry, crucify. As the crowd laid their palms in front of you, you took the way of God. You took no glory for yourself. We confess that we want to be accepted and, and take the easy way. We do not stay true to your will. Forgive us, Lord, and help us to follow in the way of obedience. Amen. Our benediction today comes from the uh, English Standard uh, Version translation of... of um, Ephesians uh, chapter 1 verse 18. May the eyes of your heart be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Have a wonderful and blessed week. Hopefully we'll be seeing each other soon in person. Thank you. God bless. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.